0: Hey there, podcast listeners, welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of Engendered, we speak with Autumn, a junior at Cornell University studying English. In the summer of 2015, when she was 18 years old, Autumn realized that she is a transgender woman, and since then, her work and writing have focused on articulating the experience of being transgender. After graduating from college, Autumn hopes to improve the understanding of mental illness and LGBTQ issues in Asian communities, especially in Korea. We speak with Autumn today about her journey of self-discovery and growth, and how we as parents. And as members of our larger community, can be affirming and supportive of gender nonconforming children and students and help create a society of true diversity, inclusion, and celebration. Welcome, Autumn. Hi, Hi. thank you. Nice to be here. In your bio, you describe yourself as gender nonconforming, and yes. I know that this interview is really supposed to be more about getting to know you, but I also was hoping that we could have um, some of our conversation be in some ways educational and informing to our listeners. I had originally written in your bio and described you as non-binary, and then you, you corrected it to say it was gender non Could you tell our listeners to find the two, and what's the difference?
1: Yes, there's actually a large number of terms describing people across um, the gender spectrum, and it's actually very confusing. A lot of, even um, people who are part of that spectrum get it wrong a lot of the time. My understanding is that Broadly speaking, people can be categorized into cisgender or transgender, and that depends. That distinction is made based on whether or not you identify with your birth sex. So a man, a, someone who is born into a male body with male genitalia and male characteristics, and who also identifies personally as male, would be cisgender. Whereas someone like me, who was born into a masculine body, but who feels more effeminate traits um, mentally and culturally and socially you would be identified as a transgender person. Now within transgender, there's several more categories. Um, There is a binary trans person, such as myself, who um, was born as one gender and identifies fully with the other one. So I was born as male and identify fully with female. There's also people who are non-binary and non-binary means that you do not identify fully as either male or female, you identify somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. Gender non-conforming is, depending on who you ask, it's either a catch-all term for non-binary people or trans people in general. Anybody who doesn't embody normal cisgender or, you know, common cisgender gender rules.
0: Okay, thank you very much for that. When did you start questioning your gender identity? You 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 shared in your call with me in your bio that it was in the summer of twenty fifteen when you had graduated from high school. Yes, so. Before then, had you ever considered that your identity would be, had you ever questioned your identity? That's a good question.
1: What's very common with transgender people is that they will have a sensation of discomfort, but not know where it comes from and not even know that it's not normal. For myself, definitely when I was growing up, I felt discomfort with my body and my appearance, but I didn't know how to articulate it because I'd never felt anything else. I didn't have anything to contrast it with. And that's the case for a lot of transgender people. For me, the moment, well, I suppose series of moments that led to this realization about myself was there was this TV show, it's called Sensate, it's on Netflix, and it features a transgender character. And the show's very good because it really gets into, it's it's not just a transgender character for the sake of having a character for diversity, it really gets into issues that transgender people face and the realities of uh, the the realities and trauma that surround that experience and also the joys of releasing this discomfort that you've had for so long and in watching that show it made me think to myself that you know being transgender isn't something that's weird or like something that's unheard of like there's real people in the world today who are identifying as transgender and their lives aren't they're not great and full of happiness because society is just not really prepared for that yet but it's doable it's livable and from there I thought more and more about my past and moments in my past where I experienced a lot of discomfort and I came to the conclusion that I think that I really am transgender I think that there's a lot of discomfort that I've had for a long time and if I were to identify as female that could be replaced with something really nice.
0: Up until that point, had you expressed any of your thoughts with family members or friends?
1: I had not very much in especially in elementary school and middle school that peer group that I had was not very I wasn't very close to anybody during that time period um i had I had trouble growing up with socializing a lot and with my parents, we'd kind of argued a lot when I was a kid, so it would have been really hard for me to open up in that way to them. It wasn't until I reached high school and started making friends with more people who were gay and bisexual and lesbian that I even thought that being gender non-conforming or identifying as any in any way outside of very strict gender roles was even a possibility. So it wasn't until I reached that community that even the first inklings of any possibility of nonconformity emerged in me. But after that, after I hit high school, then it became a little bit easier to talk about because I knew a lot of people who were going through problems like coming out to their parents, or in a lot of cases, not coming out to their parents. And even though it was very stressful and hard on them, I also saw that it was a growth for a lot of people to identify in that way. And so... That was because in high school I had that community of people who were all starting to identify as queer. That's part of what made it possible for me to come out to myself.
0: When you first came out, you said it was the summer after you graduated from high school. Who did you share your identity sort of revelation with first?
1: The first person I shared with was a very close friend of mine from high school. She identifies as bisexual. I told her, I said to her, It it just clicked for me that being transgender is real, like real people do this, and you can have a real life like this. And she was very encouraging about it. She said, yeah, it's true, like transgender people are real. And that was kind of what prompted me into coming out to everybody else. Over the course of the transition to college, I started to come out to people as transgender, even though I didn't use a new name or pronouns or anything. I would just say, hey, I identify as transgender, and I'm working on everything else, pretty much. Then that the next winter, you know, winter break, and I saw all my high school friends again. I told them, too, that I identified as transgender. And from there, I just sort of gradually kept coming out to people until now I just identify— now I just introduce myself as Autumn, and I tell people these are my preferred pronouns and everything when we first meet.
0: So for for the most part, the people that you came out to, were they supportive?
1: Yes. Most people I came out to were supportive actually. I was very lucky in that way. Growing up in New York, New York City, it's fairly liberal. Cornell University is very liberal. I didn't have that many difficulties coming out to most of the people in my life. The exception is my parents. Really just my parents. A lot of my extended family is more okay with it. My 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 family in particular was always a little bit a little different from the other ones. So the hardest part of coming out for me is definitely talking to my parents.
0: It's funny because you brought you brought up um Sensate, which is a show I love as well. And in that show, the parents do go through a journey as well. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, <good. laughs> so not to oh, you know reveal any goodness. spoilers, yeah. but for those uh, fans of the show, the one of the struggles of the character uh, the transgender character, is her name is nomi, but her birth name was Michael, yes yes, and her parents keep calling her michael mm-hmm. and there's a, I think that seemed like to be a very common experience and and i 'm wondering how how did your parents first react when you told them Yes, and have you asked them to see the show <laughs>
1: <laughs> that 's a good question, maybe I should actually. My parents are very into my dad especially is very into television, so that might not be a bad idea. When I first came out to them, it was over text message because I was coming home pretty soon. I remember I decided to tell them over text message three days before I would get home to give them time to process it. And so my mom was, I think I texted my mom first. Yeah. And my mom told my dad and she said, you know, we're taking some time to process this. Your dad cried when he found out. So that that week, I think it was a spring break, a February break. We didn't really talk about it that much until I was playing poker with my dad, and we started talking about, you know, we were just playing cards and talking and whatever and having fun. And he started talking about, you know, what this would mean. And, you know, the first thing that they go to is about worries over, say, getting a job or social results that would come as a result of transitioning. But, you know, I had already thought about all of that and decided for myself that it was more important to be true to myself than worry about what other people would think. And while I was talking to him, you know, it gradually becomes clear that it's really more about their own prejudice, not really prejudice even, their own inertia. It's making it really hard for them to process this. It took a very a long time for people to accommodate or to acclimate to a change like that for my parents, they're still working on it. my mother she has moved to trying to use gender neutral words and pronouns about me now, for which I'm grateful to her. They don't want to use my new name. they continue to use my old name, which hurts, but I understand it. yeah,
0: you have a younger brother as well i have i do yes um how how much younger is he than than you?
1: He's two years younger than me.
0: So how was he? Was he there when you went back home to come out to your parents? Or was that a separate conversation that you had with him?
1: I don't know where he was, actually, now that I think about it. Wow. That whole week, he was just always out with his friends doing something. He was in high is. school, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. he wasn't. That was his last year of high school, I'm pretty sure. Either that or his second to last. I forgot. Ha, but, has um, he
0: been supportive?
1: When I came out to him, he basically said, it doesn't really matter to me, which I take as being supportive. I think that's, you know, for Tyler, that's pretty good.
0: Wow. So that's awesome. And has he, I mean, I guess it's not his role necessarily, but what kind of role has he taken to help, as you said, acclimate your parents to this change?
1: He has done very little. Uh, My brother... I mean, just
0: to be fair, like it's not his role. So I'm just curious because I don't Mm -hmm. want to put that burden on him. He's listening to this.
1: No, we both understand. We have both of us. We knew from a very young age that our parents were difficult to reason with sometimes. And we both took different approaches to that from a young age. I was always the one who would try to argue back and try to show my side of a case, which was sometimes very difficult because, you know, once everyone's emotions are up, it's very difficult to express yourself clearly, everything and everything. With my brother, he usually would take more of a backseat to everything. He would just kind of watch everything happen and try not to get involved. He was not the more quiet one, but definitely the less combative one, the more passive.
0: And what, what kinds of um, differences did you and your parents disagree on? Was was it about your school, you know, your academic performance? Was it about your behavior? Did you, you know, not do your chores? I'm curious how, how maybe your unconsciously, mm-hmm. your identity, which you may not have had access to and been able to articulate, somehow that came up in the conflict that ensued.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One big thing for me is that I had a lot of trouble in group settings. I had a lot of trouble when there were a lot of people around, which I now understand is kind of a result of not having a gender identity that I was very comfortable with, and therefore not having a social presentation that I was very comfortable with. I I would have to identify as male to a lot of people, and that was difficult for me it caused me pain in ways that I didn't really know how, I didn't understand that that was pain. I didn't understand that not everybody goes through this. I thought this was just something everybody felt. And so that would lead to arguments about things like, um, my dad always wanted me to participate in sports. He would tell me, you know, hey, you got to do something. Why don't you do like baseball or soccer or something like that? And that was hard for me because... When there's that many people playing together, that's a really big social experience. And without a gender identity that I feel comfortable with, that can be really difficult to navigate, I think. So that's one way in which my gender identity would conflict with my parents.
0: Had your parents, in other ways, encouraged you to adhere to traditional gender norms besides participating in sports, group sports?
1: There were little ways, yeah. I remember... My parents almost certainly have forgotten at this point, but there's definitely moments when my dad would criticize, for example, the way in which I was walking, like I was walking too into a, feminine, a fashion or something like that. And another thing is that my, when my brother and I were playing with our toys, sometimes we would go into a falsetto, like a really high-pitched voice um, for some of the toys we were playing with. And I remember one day my dad said, you can't do that anymore, like you can't use your falsetto when you're playing with toys and
0: how old were you then?
1: I think I was probably like 6 or 7.
0: Clearly it had a, a impression on you. Yeah, yeah. What else what kinds of other things did he do to signal that that wasn't okay, that transgressions in not conforming to gender norms were were not going to be looked upon favorably?
1: Truthfully, after just a couple instances like that, I began to sense very clearly that I needed to start embodying some, you know, masculine stereotypes in order to survive even in this household. And so I didn't really have a lot of ways in which I would try to express any kind of gender nonconforming identity because I knew that doing so would probably put me in danger, honestly. But he did a lot of the times criticize my emotional responses to things. I didn't always act like it, but I was actually a very emotional child. And it's in part because I learned from my dad to kind of not really express a whole lot. And so things would bottle up and things would explode in pretty bad ways sometimes. And at the low points of that cycle, the points at which my emotions would start to erupt, that would be when he would be the most critical of my seeming inability to control my emotions, my seeming inability to stop crying and stuff like that. He would talk a lot about how, as men, we have to be very confident and very strong. And a lot of the times, the ways in which I expressed emotions would not conform to that idea that he had.
0: You were expressing emotions through a quote-unquote feminine way of crying, like you said. Had you ever expressed emotions by being angry? And would that have been more satisfactory to him, more acceptable to him?
1: I punched a hole in a wall once when I was in high school. That was that's pretty masculine, I guess. I think that moments like that made him realize that wow, that is not better. Like uh uh-huh. that's that's not really an improvement over just crying. But yeah, there would be a lot of times when I would get very angry and start yelling back at my parents and as I think that as I got older and went through high school, I would try to take on more and more masculine ideas in order to try to appease my parents and in order to try to fit in better with society. And that's kind of how I started to find that, you know, it doesn't fit. Like these masculine things don't fit. I wouldn't become stronger and I wouldn't become more confident and assertive. I would just get angrier and I would get more violent um, and destructive. And I think that my dad probably saw that too. I think my dad saw that as his kid was getting older and trying to be more masculine
0: they were also being more destructive besides the sports what what kinds of ways were you trying to conform like the, did you start dating girls were you playing violent video games like call of duty like what what were some of the cues the gender cues that you were giving to him that you were you were doing what he wanted i think that for me truthfully
1: i always made a distinction between how i was presenting at home and how i was presenting in public and so, a lot of the time, I would understand that I don't need, I don't really need to embody masculine characteristics. I only need to fake it while I'm around my dad, really. I think one thing that I did was that at some point in my first year of high school, I remember I came home and my dad and my brother were talking and they were kind of making fun of each other a lot. They were taking cracks at each other and insulting each other. And I, w- thought to myself, hey, that's actually kind of cool. Like, you know, they have this thing that they're doing. I want to participate in this. And then I did. And I started joking around with them and making fun of them a lot. And I think that was in part something that I picked up to try to create a more masculine identity for myself. Yeah, I became, I'm more belligerent around my dad. I still am to this day, really. I changed my attitude a lot when I'm around him, in part because I have that subconscious desire to create a masculine persona to appease him. But I also knew that this was really just for him or really just for the family. And when I was in public, I didn't need to act like that anymore.
0: One of the things that you shared with me that I actually found surprising, which is that both of your parents are first-generation Asian American. Yes. And they're actually my in my peer group. And they grew up in New York City, they did yes and and so to me, that's been i think surprising because I always look upon you know where I'm a Gen Xer, and your parents are too, but we we all you know I have the stereotype that oh, it's only the baby boomers that are not progressive and you know not able to embrace progressive values, and your parents are not immigrants, they're first generation. So they they grew up in a generation of people who were basically coming into their own in terms of gender identity and coming up with all these terms. And I'm sure a lot of their peer group probably are also gender nonconforming. So it's surprising to me that they haven't been able to be more supportive, which I guess, who am I to say because I'm not in their position. I mean, Let's look at chair, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, I I didn't read enough about her, but it, I think it wasn't like an easy path for her as well mm-hmm. to come to where she is. Are your parents friends and you know their siblings if they have any? Have they been more open and accepting?
1: Yeah, surprisingly, yes. I've come out to a couple of the other families in you know our network extended family. My dad's brother, my Suk he he was very. He's actually very good about it. I think he's the first relative I came out to, and he said it's going to be really hard. Like you know, this is not an easy thing to do, but I support you. And he gave me a hug, and it was nice. Very. I think I came out to an aunt and uncle as well, who were very supportive. My parents are were kind of kind of the the bottleneck for coming out to my family. And I kind of understand it because I think it's harder when it's someone who's closer to you. My parents were also kind of just always the most conservative of my extended family, honestly, to be fair. But also, you know, if it's someone very close to you, it's a much bigger change. Like, you know, my, my aunts and uncles, they would see me once a month, maybe once every two months or something like that. My parents, they would see me every day and talk to me every day. And they would call me Harrison every day. They would use male pronouns around me every day. And so asking them to change all of that, it's, it's much bigger, I think, when it's someone who's very close to you like that. And so I, I don't want to be too hard on them because I know that it's a really big change and it's a lot of stuff changing at once. And if it's someone close to you, then you're asking them to change a lot of stuff in a pretty short amount of time, honestly.
0: So I'm curious, are are they politically conservative as well? Does this response align with their political views? That's a great question. And I don't really know
1: because my family knows better than to talk about politics. Really? we are We have fought about much smaller things than politics. And so I think all of us just understand that if we start to talk about politics, it's just not going to end well.
0: So you don't even know who your parents voted for?
1: Um, I'm pretty sure my dad voted for Hillary Clinton. I didn't talk to my mom about it, and I just don't want to ask.
0: Okay. Wow. Okay. Because yeah. I'm steeped in
1: <laughs> yeah, political
0: yeah. conversations with uh-huh. everybody that I know. And if and if they're uh, not interested, then somehow it always comes back to that conversation. Because in today's society, how can you avoid the sort of daily... Yeah. Misses of uh, what we get in the news cycle mm-hmm. growing up, besides your parents and you said your peers were very supportive, were there other people at organizations that you reached out to, people at school that helped you along this journey um, that provided either therapy or access to resources that were really important to your to your coming out I feel like.
1: I actually think that I kind of had to do a lot of it myself there are there's definitely been pe- like don't get me wrong like there's been people at university who have been really tremendously supportive um My therapist for my first two years of college was fantastic. I talked to him about everything in my life. He was great. I have a doctor at Cornell who specializes in gender care, and you know there's just this it's really a great environment to come out in at Cornell. But the truth is that there's so much about being transgender that people just don't understand. Like, there's so many subtleties and nuances and little struggles about being transgender that no one really prepares you for that it's kind of hard to point at any particular person and say, you know, that person helped me a lot because there's just... Hundreds of little things that you have to do for yourself, and hundreds of little realizations you have to make for yourself in order to get everything to function. And so it's really a very lonely experience, honestly. It's very isolating. And even with other trans people, every trans person is a little different and a little farther or a little behind on that journey towards the gender that they want to be. And our experiences are very different, and it's difficult sometimes to kind of find a common ground with another trans person even. So, yeah, it's, there's, there's people, there are people who are out there who have helped me a lot. But when you're transgender, I think that really a lot of the times you have to help yourself.
0: What are some of the things, you said there, were, there are a hundred little things that you yeah. have to work through. Mm-hmm. What are some of those things that you have to do on your own?
1: One of the biggest things for me was realizing that your gender identity guides how you act in conversation tremendous amount, and it guides how people respond to you a tremendous amount as well. It's difficult to describe like how deep it is, but your gender just defines everything about the social interaction that you're in. And so someone who's transgender and someone who is somehow caught between male and female, for example, that person suddenly a lot of the cues that people will rely on for conversation, they're gone. Like people will know consciously that I identify as female, but they'll still be looking at me and saying, you know, wow, this person has pretty male characteristics or wow, this person's voice is kind of deep or something like that.
0: Wait, how um, are they tell- communicating this to you?
1: They aren't. They're just thinking it.
0: Oh, but you could tell that they're thinking it? Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah,
1: no. Um, there's like God, like when someone looks at you so someone looks at me at work, I can tell when there's just like an extra half second that they're looking at me, that they're, they're they're trying to figure me out, that they're trying to be like, wait, what? What is this but this person, are you male or female? Like they're trying to they're they're doing like this mental arithmetic. They're like, Wait, I think you're wearing a bra, but your cheeks are kinda like, you know, they're a little sharp. And, you know, your voice your voice is kinda deep. And I'm like, Yeah, I know. And so There's always like this little uncertainty in any interaction when you're transgender. Um, When you're talking to anybody, they're going to be a little bit uncertain about how to deal with you. And a lot of the times if you're transgender, you're not really going to know either. You're going to be like, well, I mean, I identify as this, but I grew up as this other thing. So like all of my social training is in this other gender so I can't really use it anymore. So I feel kind of lost too in this conversation. And so a lot of the times, I think when you're talking to a trans person, or if you're cisgender, if you're talking to a trans person, you end up feeling very lost in the conversation because both of you are missing a lot of the performances and gender cues that most people have to use during the conversation. So I think if you're transgender, it's actually really, really important to cultivate a lot of confidence and the ability just to just grab a social situation and be like, this is what we're doing now. Because if you can't, if you don't do that, then it's just going to hang. It's just not going to happen really, because neither person really knows what to do. So you kind of just need to be like, yeah, I'm going to direct this. I'm going to say like, this is how you should be acting. This is how I should be acting. Not as in like you're actually telling that person how to act, but you are acting so confident that they're like, oh, okay, here's how I should act to correspond to like whatever's going on over there. Hopefully that made sense.
0: Your parents are one is Korean American, one is Chinese American. Yes. so I and, and obviously your racial ide- ethnic identity rather is mixed yes. as well. So how does this differ in social interactions where people are trying to figure out what ethnic identity you are? Are you Chinese? Are you Korean? Are you Japanese? Like is there a difference? That's a good
1: question. For the most part, honestly, no, because America is predominantly white. And white culture still doesn't make a tremendous distinction between the various East Asian races, like Korean, Japanese, and Chinese all sound very similar to a lot of Westerners. Um, And so that particular aspect of my identity, like the, the sort of division between Chinese and Korean culture, that itself doesn't really come up that much. But I will say that the general sense of being Asian and Asian American means that I think Asian people... Kind of have to be much more aware of the social context that they're in, more so than Westerners a lot of the time. Because, in you know, Asian culture, you always have to respect your elders in a very particular way. There's always like little rules to interactions that you don't know, and then someone has to tell you when you're a kid and stuff like that. And so, I think I benefit from being Asian in that. Um, from a very young age, I was thinking about social interactions in. A pretty sophisticated way. Like you need to learn a lot of little details in order to survive as an Asian American child. And having to learn those details and getting into that mindset of really studying how a conversation flows, I think that helps a lot when you're also trying to identify as transgender.
0: What you're referring to is basically the hierarchy, yeah, right? Yeah. In Asian like the Confucian hierarchy. Yes, exactly. And so you're saying if if we are um as Asian Americans, if we're cued into what the Dynamics are of power differentials yes. in the various um, individuals that we come across and the family members and relationships, that that actually can be very helpful, a helpful guide for you in, yes. in, the, in a, you know, gender, assigning gender roles and your gender performance. Yes, in
1: a way, it kind of, I would say that the hierarchical nature of Asian societies, it serves to replace the need for gender roles because even if i don't have even if i don't have a gender role i still know like my age role i know like oh i'm younger than you and so i'll act in this way or i'm older than you and i'll act in this way so with that um extra layer to that interaction you can take out the gender part of it and the and the relationship can still function in you know a somewhat reasonable way and from there you can rebuild it in a way that includes your preferred gender identity that's how i would that's what i think um happens with asian, asian trans people
0: so what about possibility that in this hypothetical scenario where you and this other person who is cisgendered is, you know, you're meeting with someone for the first time and they are um, trying to define you and put you in a box, right? In, a, in an ethnic box, in a gender box, etc. cetera. Why can't two people come together without any boxes, without any, you know, pre-described categories and, and just interact as humans? You know, have you ever had that experience
1: it's very is, difficult, I think, because it's Is, dif- is it
0: difficult uh, as in not possible or in that we can't even envision it? Or it's difficult because it's so hard to achieve, but still possible?
1: I think that, I don't think it's impossible necessarily, but it kind of means, I think, that people have to guess right, like, and with a pretty high percentage. I think that with... Whenever you meet a new person, you can't know everything about that person right after meeting them. And so, like for example, you can't you can't really know you can't really know someone's religion from first meeting them really. Um not easily. And so maybe you have a religious belief that is X and the person's other religious belief is Y. And if the other person's religious belief is different from yours, you can't talk about your religion in the same way. Whereas if they're the same religion as you, then the conversation is totally different and you talk about your religion in this way instead. It's kind of the same thing where like, that's like one really small example of a lot of different ways in which you, you need someone else's information. You need data on another person in order to understand how to interact with them. And so even though it can be discomforting to talk to somebody and be trying to figure out how to put them in a specific role or box or stereotype, it's necessary to some extent for the first, say, like minute of an interaction because that's where you're getting a lot of like little cues and details from and you need that foundation of here is some stuff I know about this person in order for it to function. I think the problem arises when you try to take that too far where some where you like you feel like you've put this person in a kind of appropriate box but then they do something that kind of breaks out of that box a little bit. And that's where you're really starting to get to know someone where you're like, "Oh, okay, here is the initial set of assumptions I made about you, but now you're starting to contradict them." So now I have to go a layer deeper and be like, "Oh, what's this new stuff? How do I fit this into who I think you are?" And I think that for some people that transition can be a little bit difficult. I think that's the difficulty that a lot of like that a lot of like racist and sexist interactions will have where somebody will struggle to fit this new concept of the person into who they think they are. And then when that happens, you know, if, if you're resistant to it, if you don't accept that this person is different from what you first thought, then you, then that's where problems start to arise. But before that point, um, just in those initial few, first few steps of the conversation, I do think is necessary for people to kind of hit a common footing just to get to know each other at Can, first.
0: I, I'm going to push back a little bit. Isn't it possible to create commonality through inquiry just getting to know what it, what motivates the other person you know what their likes and dislikes are what 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 you know gives them joy instead of it being based on external in a way artificial characteristics that are socially constructed right like all of, all of these identity characteristics that we've been talking about are socially constructed but things that are like what, what's my favorite TV show or whose book really was um, influential during my childhood. Those kinds of things are deeper and really speak to the person's values, I think, and interests and their core rather than the external superficial layer of identity that we use commonly, but maybe not desirably to get to know one another. I mean, I'll, I'll just give you like back in the day when I had participated in a few sessions of speed dating, yeah. I hated the, first of all, you only have three minutes, sometimes three to maybe five minutes at most. And it seems really wasteful to ask questions around what their job is or, or um, things that to me don't really tell much about a person. And so I, I would always ask questions about what, what was their favorite childhood memory? Something that really, I think, spoke to a deeper part of who they were. Who was the most influential person in their life? Who would they call if they had a problem? Like, and, and really get deeper into that mm-hmm. um, person's motivations, right? And I feel like, why can't we do that? You know, when we meet someone at a cocktail party or whatever, I mean, obviously, if it's a business setting, That's different. There's a whole level, layer of performance there that needs to take place and there are certain rules. But in other social settings, I feel like we get to redefine what what that interaction can be like.
1: That's a good question. And I do agree that things that are superficial, you know, the the deeper you go, the less superficial qualities become, the better they are at finding commonality. The part where I think that I disagree with you is the part where identity becomes superficial as opposed to very core. Um, This is something that I think that being transgender really highlights for you. Your gender identity and your race, the culture you come from, things like that, they're all actually very, very fundamental to who you are as a person. It sticks with you in really, really deep ways. One big contrast for me is when I identified as male And when I identified as male versus identifying as female, I was actually treated differently by my female friends in a pretty big way. When I was, notably when I started to identify as female and people started really taking in that female gender identity, I realized that women talk in much more detail about people and people's characteristics and their motivations than men do. Um, And... Even when I was, even when I identified as male, like most of my friends were female, that's just kind of how things ended up, but they wouldn't talk to me on the same level. They wouldn't make, they wouldn't let me in sort of on the same conversation. And that's one way in which I think gender really informs how your interactions work. When you're a man, you don't really, you either don't need to or don't have to or don't want to like get into someone's head in the same way whereas if you're female you're going to want to do that a lot more to women talking together i feel like we'll probably want to talk about people and talk and get into get really deep into a conversation about someone more so than say two men talking together or a man and a woman talking together that's one way in which they differ another way i think is that i'll talk about the contrast between talking to um, a caucasian person and an asian person in Asian communities, because we already talked about um, hierarchy in Asian communities, and so if you are Asian or Asian American, you are very pronouncedly aware of hierarchies in society. And it's actually it's, for me, it's to the point where I feel more comfortable in a position where I'm in a hierarchy than when I'm not. Like if I know someone is my superior or if I know someone is my subordinate, then I feel more comfortable than if we're equals because I, I know more about the social interaction of hierarchy. The way this might play out for example is if two Asian people are talking to to each other and one of them is significantly older than the, than another one that will inform how much the younger person shares to the older one like you know they they probably won't contradict them very much at all because they wouldn't feel comfortable doing that because they have that awareness of hierarchy whereas if an Asian person and a Caucasian person are talking together it it may be more likely that a Caucasian person who's younger will feel more comfortable contradicting the older Asian person because they didn't grow up with that deep awareness of hierarchy. And then consequently, maybe that older Asian person might feel a little uncomfortable because they might be thinking, wow, why is this younger person contradicting me or something like that? That's just a couple examples, I think, of a lot of the ways in which your your gender and ethnic identity can really inform how your social interactions play out. Um, And it's true that things like your motivations and people think people and media that inspire you, those are all important to people. But the ways in which your gender identity and your ethnic identity inform your social interactions are really much deeper, I think, and much more pervasive. And that's something that you become really hyper-aware of when you identify as transgender.
0: I, I want to make sure that my earlier comment was clear and Certainly, I agree that gender and ethnic identity are something that's core to someone's identity and, and to how they see and define themselves. But what I was saying earlier was not that, that they shouldn't be viewed in a way that was important, but that we should be the ones to define the level to which they inform our identity. Yes. Rather than having it being imposed upon us. Yes. So, in a superficial, sort of performative way, mm-hmm. like we get to bring it into the conversation when and if it's relevant. So, just to clarify yeah, what yeah. I meant by that, because obviously I agree. And with everything that you're saying, it's one thing I would add is that I don't know that it's desirable for us to necessarily want to be comfortable with knowing the different hierarchical and relationship dynamics in a social setting. Maybe some social scientists will tell us that's necessary for healthy group functioning, for everybody to know where they stand. I don't know enough about that, but it seems to me that that an ideal setting for what I would like is where people come in without any kind of predefined notions of power, of um, hierarchy, of social status, and they that there is no status, that they come together sort of with openness and curiosity and getting to know one another without the sort of additional layer of what society has imposed upon what they think should be in the, in the um, process of discovery. Does that sound too idealistic? You've said that you've Prefer that. I mean, I certainly think in a professional setting, it's nice to know what the dynamics are because you're stepping into something that you don't get to define. Unless, of course, you're the person who's like an entrepreneur and starting your own company. Then, in some ways, you get to define yeah. that more. Yeah,
1: yeah. Do I think it's ideal? I think it is ideal in the sense that, okay, I think that all the stuff we've been talking about up until now. It really mostly has to do with maybe your first interaction with a person or like the first half of your first interaction with a person. Um, and after that, there's so many layers of getting to know someone, of getting to know their histories and, you know, what they like and dislike and their personalities and everything. And then once you know them on that level, then the other systems, the hierarchy systems and the gender systems, those aren't really as important anymore. And so I think it would be ideal in the sense that, you get to that level faster. You get to the level of getting to know someone on a very deep level more quickly, which I think is ideal. The sort of hang-up that I would imagine could come as a result of that is that is it requires everybody in that interaction to be very aware of what's going on. They all have to understand, like, okay, we're skipping past a lot of the normal shortcuts that people will take. We're going to accelerate this relationship into something that's very close and very personal. And if everybody knows that and everybody acknowledges it, then it can be really good. But if somebody doesn't know what's going on, maybe they don't have experience in trying to create a relationship like that, it can be very confusing for that person, I think. And so there's some diff, there's some balance you have to strike where you have to understand. Sometimes people have to rely on those shortcuts, those hierarchy systems, those gender systems, those ethnicity systems, and everything. They have to rely on those systems to, for their first impression because they just don't have experience doing anything else. Um, and I think we should acknowledge that.
0: So, one thing I was, uh, one thing that you just said earlier yeah. about, you know, how the dynamics of your female friendships changed from when you were. Male identified versus now, yes, is that there's more openness and I guess intimacy around sharing conversationally, you know, stories, right? Am I sort of representing that correctly? Yes, that is true. That's a function of what they're the the other people in that group, so the females in that group are responding to, but but why? And I'm guessing you like that. You like that there's more intimacy. Okay, so I guess stereotypically women i think are indoctrinated to be more relational and to value that and to nurture that aspect of our identities mm-hmm. right it's a skill that's a skill that helps us in mothering and caretaking and being the sort of soft emotional person that people can come to and children can come to and their you know husbands can come home to and mouth off, you know, the, the frustrations of the day. And then, you know, we kind of absorb all of that, right? I think. But why, when you were male identified, did it ever occur to you that if you were seeking intimacy in these friendships, that you could initiate it yourself? That if the conversations weren't as intimate, that you could create that intimacy in the ways in which you brought up stories and conversations and, and your feelings?
1: I, when I identified as male, had no idea that that other layer even existed. Like, I never participated in it. I had never seen it happen. I didn't know it was possible for like conversation on that level to exist, like at all. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. It's actually pretty interesting to see like how women will interact so differently with with other women versus with men it's a gigantic shift in how much you share and how much you talk and what you'll talk about and stuff like that and that's something that i think being transgender that's like one of the only places where you can see it in such a pronounced way and so i think that for a lot of men if we t- want to talk if we want to talk more generally they don't even understand what level women are talking on when women are talking by themselves it's so different
0: but what about in media? Like that's why you have a whole general, you have a whole genre of films for women, so to speak, right? Yeah. Like stereotypically, men don't like going to those films. Mm-hmm. Those films are targeted towards women and about female friendships, like Beaches or yeah. um, Fried Green Tomatoes. You know, those yeah. those are two of my favorite films. Have you seen those films? Have you Have you seen films where? There are female friendships represented and you see the kind of intimate conversation that takes place. I saw Mean Girls. That was pretty good. That's not a good <laughs> example. <laughs> so maybe that's that's what it takes that we need to yeah. be more open to seeing that there's mm-hmm. actually, you know, there are actually texts out there that we can access yeah. either through books or TV shows or film yeah, um, that represent this other world to you that you hadn't been exposed to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think media is definitely the biggest way that gender, that like the sort of pathological aspects of gender we have can be broken. It doesn't help, I think. so. So first of all, like those films and books, they have this reputation of being feminine and, you know, masculinity does not like including feminine elements in it at all. And so it's really difficult for a man to experience that in a way where they're actually taking it seriously. And, you know, that's part of, part of the problem is, is that masculine culture is kind of really against including feminine elements more so, I think, than I would say feminine culture is interested in including masculine elements. More openness... By men to to female things and stereotypically female things will probably help a lot. Like once you get into that world and once you see that, like, wow, like I can understand people on a much deeper level if I'm willing to talk about these topics. Um, Once you get into that, I think that it becomes very clear that that's going to enrich your life in a really powerful way. So yeah, absolutely, I agree with you.
0: Yeah, and so I I, so maybe like the cue is whatever we talk to our therapist about, (laughs) we should feel comfortable talking about with our. I mean, not whatever, but for the most part, we should feel comfortable talking about with our friends and, and significant others. Yeah. There shouldn't be this layer that we don't expose to anybody else. Mm-hmm. Speaking of media, what do you feel about the representation of trans people in the media these days? It's
1: limited. It's I don't see a whole lot of it. And to be fair, I don't really seek it out that much, you know, just casually here and there. I think that one thing that definitely I hear about in trans communities a lot is that trans women are vastly overrepresented in media and Mm -hmm. trans men are vastly underrepresented. So a trans woman is someone who identifies as male to female. So they were born in a male body and now identify as female. A trans man is someone who was born female and identifies now as a man. And so when you're going from male to female, you get a lot more representation than from when you're going female to male. For some reason, I'm not totally sure why that's the case, but a better balance would be nice. And I think that on a broader level, more representation, well, maybe not more representation, but a better diverse representation of different possible configurations of gender and sex would be nice. It's kind of, it, it, what kinds of and it ends up happening is that Trans woman becomes a role. It becomes another entity like black is a role and Asian is a role. And then when you start exposing trans people, then it's like trans woman is a role. And then maybe in like five years, trans man is a role. Um, but it's problematic because what we're finding with gender is that there aren't really like these, this there isn't, we don't want to have like this small subset of roles that each person will be like, this is the role that fits me the best and that I'll live in this role. Instead, when it comes to gender, the ideal that I think we're seeking is for people to be able to construct their own role and feel comfortable in that, Um, to take elements of whatever gender they identify with and whatever, you know, whatever, however they want to present socially, they can include different elements in whatever arrangement they find the most comfortable and present that instead. And that's something that's going to be really hard if we're thinking about if you think about trans diversity in terms of like, I want to see more trans men and more trans women. Um, if you think in really rigid terms like that, then I think that it's difficult to approach the underlying problem, which is that we have these roles that are defined in such a rigid way. Media. I think the best direction for media is to try to approach these roles in a more fluid way, which is something that's really difficult, I'll admit, in media because you know it's much easier to pre- present a role that is well known by a lot of people versus you know trying to invent an entirely new one. Um, but if that's the, if you overcome that challenge, I think that's where you start to see some really good progress for society.
0: Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. This past week, she's been in the news a lot, maybe more than a week. Mm-hmm for her accepting a, a role as in a biopic, Rub and Tub, I think is the name of it, about her playing a trans man. And there was a lot of pushback, even more so because she has accept- she played an Asian person in a previous film. And yes. so what are your thoughts about representation in the media and um, authenticity of representation in the yes. media? It's a good question. I
1: think we can all pretty much I agree that the ideal is to have people play the roles that reflect who they are in real life. That would be ideal in most cases. And then the question for me becomes, okay, why is it the case that we have Scarlett Johansson playing a trans man instead of an actual trans man playing a trans man? One possibility is that they just couldn't find any trans men for the role, which is a very real possibility, and if that's the case, then you know, okay we'll go with an, a different actor. And the fact that they cast a female to play a trans man, I think is actually like the correct way to go about it because then it's because then you're kind of like if you cast a man to tra- to play a trans man, then you're I feel like you're not really getting at the what it actually means to be a trans man, which is like that journey from being a woman to a man. You know, you have to identify as female for some part of your early life. And then you transition into identifying as male. So casting a female for it is good. I think that's a step in the right direction. But so if there's just no trans men who are available for the role, then okay, yeah, that's fine. But let's say there are trans men. Maybe, for example, you don't think that any of the trans men have like the acting capacity to play this role, for example. I find this unlikely, but let's say this is the case where like you've casted them and you feel like they just don't match up, like they don't have the acting credibility for it. If that's the case, I think it's also understandable. But then you also, for like a really high-budget movie, like yeah, you do want to bank on the more reliable actor for that sort of thing. But then I think you have to also be like, well, okay, we just cast a cisgender woman to play a trans man in this movie that's about a trans man. Let us now take a step back and maybe try something lower budget and get a trans an actual trans man into that role so that we can try to start building up the experience for a trans men so that they can eventually be participate in these really high budget movies and we won't be nervous about it. So, I think that if you're going to do it based on acting concerns, like acting ability concerns, it's okay as long as you're also creating opportunities for trans people or people not just trans people as long as you're also creating opportunities for the group that you are possibly marginalizing if you're creating opportunities for them then i think it's better than for example if it's just because of bankability like it's just if it's pretty much just because like scarlett johansson is going to bring more viewers than an actual trans man then i think that's where you start to move into sketchy territory i think that's the point where you start to say like well okay are we trying to make a movie about a trans man, or are we trying to make a movie that will make back its money with a gar- with like a really high probability? Like that's, and if you're if it's the former, it's then it starts to become distasteful to bring a social justice issue into it because then it's like, oh, we are pretty much just leveraging the social justice stuff to make more money as opposed to an actual concern, which is. More distasteful because it's like, it's important. Like, there's people who are dying and living terrible lives because of the social justice thing. And there's also easier ways to create bankability. Like, you don't have to leverage social justice to make a movie that will make back its own money. Like, you can just release another superhero movie or something like that. So, for me, I think that it depends on their reason for it. Um, oh, and there's obviously another one. It's just like, oh, we don't like trans men. And if that's the reason, that's just awful. And <laughs> you should pick a different reason. But yeah, so it depends on the reason for why it's happening. And I think that on each level, there's something understandable to be said about it. But on each level, there should be kind of a step. In, in, on each level, there's like a possibility for a step in the right direction that I think a studio would want to should be taking
0: if they're going to, to make this casting decision. Just to sort of clarify, because okay, yeah. I think you're referring to the former when you were speaking, was really about the latter, right? You're, you're, you're hoping that the studio isn't creating a film that's whose goal is only bankability and making back its money.
1: Yes, right? I okay. hope that is not the case. I okay. hope that's not what they're doing.
0: But it's ironic given that Scarlett's last film, where she played an Asian person yes, in yes. Ghost in the Shell, which was widely criticized for its whitewashing, didn't make money. And yet they're still, you know, so I can't imagine that mm-hmm. this is this is something that they would bet on someone who hasn't been successful That's true. in earning them their their profit and revenue back. And in some ways, like I feel what's the point of doing this if you're not even going to make a sincere effort to explore this issue and probably reach out to the community and ask them what they want. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: it's very true. Very large media companies like that are probably also going to be really slow to react. Like I could imagine that Scarlett Johansson actually had a contract to make this movie for like two years before Ghost in the Shell was even a thing, um, and it's only just now being announced. So it's very possible that they made this decision without realizing how big of an impact it would have for like for Scarlett Johansson to play a role that she doesn't actually identify with, like if she plays an Asian or person or a trans man. Maybe they didn't realize like, oh, that's actually really, really bad when they made that casting decision um, because they made it so long ago. That's one possibility that I can see.
0: And and also I've read a lot of articles criticizing the fact that they're they cast a cisgendered woman in this role versus having a cisgendered man. Like they feel like that would be less bad. They feel like... Really? Yeah, you know, for exactly the opposite reason that you were saying. So there's so many opinions here, and and in some ways, I could see how the studio would say, "Well, we're never gonna, you know, satisfy everybody, so we'll just do what we want."
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's a good question. Like, which which is better and which is worse? And I don't really know the answer. I feel like I'd rather. I feel like honestly, you can make a case in either direction, and it depends. In part on what the subject matter of the film is. Like, if it's about the transition from f- ma- female to male, then it makes sense to cast a woman in the role because it's about that transition. If they come into the film already being a fully fledged trans man who is like you know done with all the steps of transitioning, then I can see how it makes more sense to cast them as a as um, a cisgender man. I don't know for sure which one is better or worse, but you know that's a, it, is, it is an interesting question. I got to say,
0: who are the the people that you look to as heroes and role models for your for your gender identity, the closest that I get
1: is the Wachowski sisters. Now they, you know, they made Sense Eight, so they inspired me. They they pretty much directly inspired me to be transgender. They were the ones who showed me what it was and that it's possible, and that you know I can do it. That's pretty great. So they're they're big. They're really high on the list. But besides that, like I said before, you have to do so much on your own and there's really so few trans voices out there that I feel like there's not a whole lot of things that you can look to as a young trans person and say, yeah, you're do this person's doing it, I'm going to do it too. I don't feel like I really had a lot of chances to look at, to feel like that, to feel like these people have been guiding me down this path and now I can follow in their footsteps. So that's the kind of person that I want to be. I want to be someone who young trans people can look up to um, and say, hey, she made it. I can do this too.
0: Well, I think you're already there, Autumn. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) So in closing, is there anything that you would like to say to parents or to you know our listeners about what they could do better um, or differently to not participate in creating a binary world and to create a you know a world of more openness and compassion and empathy and acceptance yeah
1: um the first thing I'll say is that if you're a young transgender person or you're a young questioning person you're going to have a lot of really high stake social pressure on you not to transition, probably, or not to identify as anything else. And I'm going to tell you that, you know, I've talked to people who are transgender, you know, I'm in these communities, and nobody who says to themselves, I'm just going to bottle it up and I'm just going to hold it all in, none of these people are happy. It never works out when you try to live your life that way, and you shouldn't have to live your life that way. Even if it's hard and even if it hurts a lot, I think it's important to hold on to that gender identity, hold on to that little piece that you know is right, that you know in your heart is who you really are. If you hold on to it and live your life, even if right now you can't come out, even if right now you don't feel safe identifying as who you really are, you'll grow into something new. You'll grow and you'll have space to express yourself, I think. You'll come into a place in your life where you can finally be who you really are. And it, it, w- it could take a very long time, and you may have to hold on to this part of yourself for a very long time, but it'll be worth it in the end. And there are people out there, people like me, who are people like the Wachowski sisters, who are trying to fight for you, who are trying to make the world a better place for you. So, you know, there's people on your side who are here for you. If you're the parent of someone who is transgender or questioning, I understand that this is an extremely difficult step in your life. There's a huge number of changes that you have to make in a very short period of time. I think that the most important thing to acknowledge is that all of the pain that you are feeling right now, your child is feeling just as much pain. You know, it hurts just as much for them. Um, and that's something that's something you can forget sometimes you know sometimes I feel like if you're in a lot of pain, you forget that the people around you are suffering too. Pain and suffering are very isolating things, but isolation is the one thing that I think you can't really afford in a time like this. You have to connect and you have to understand, and it can be really difficult to achieve that understanding, but that is the way forward for you and your child, regardless of what the final decision is, regardless of. Who they truly come to identify, it's important, I think, to create a space in which they do not feel isolated, in which they can express who they, feel, who they think they are and what they feel in a really open way. Isolation is the enemy and interaction and connection are the key, I think. So try not to let your child feel afraid. Try to help them feel welcome. If you are already in a position where you think they feel afraid or you think they're uncomfortable with you. I think it does fall on you to break down that wall because you are their guardian. You have to create that space where they feel safe. And so I think the most important thing to do for the care of your child is if they feel afraid of you and if they don't feel comfortable with you, to create that safety and comfort, whatever it takes. The gender stuff, you know, it's important, but it can wait. The most important thing, the first step, is to create a safe space for them.
0: Thank you very much for your time today. Of course. After our interview, Autumn brought to my attention that I had inappropriately used the word transgendered, past tense, instead of transgender several times in our conversation. I apologize for that. The reasons are numerous as to why the term transgendered is offensive. So in order to do justice to the explanations, I'm sharing a link in the show notes for our listeners to read. Please do so. We both acknowledged how it was similar to how Asian Americans are still being called quote-unquote Orientals, and why that is outdated and offensive, but that's for another show. The important thing to remember is that words matter, and I will definitely be more mindful going forward. Thank you, Autumn, for pointing that out to me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. Can Do It helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. Can Do it. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at Engendered podcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you.